Let me tell you a story, podcast number 23. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a true universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hey, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Once again, we have some great stories written by good friends for your listening pleasure. I'll begin with a true story by Pam McClary titled tornado. Palm Sunday, April 11th, 1965. It was a balmy Sunday morning, already showing signs of being a warm spring day. My family was headed to church, and we could tell by the stillness that there would be storms heading our way. But that was nothing unusual. It was spring in Indiana, and storms were a normal part of the season. We were used to tornado watches and warnings and thought little of of what might come our way. Hoping to beat the train at the 18th Street crossing, we would be late if we we got caught by the long train, we drove the 15 miles to church and arrived in good time. We enjoyed the services, marveling at the goodness of God who loved us enough to provide redemption for us. After the service, Linda, Joyce, and I decided to spend the afternoon together as we did many Sundays between morning and evening services. Joyce invited us to her house in Russiaville, which was about a 30-minute drive in the opposite direction from my house. We finished talking to our friends and climbed into the back seat of Joyce's parents' car and prepared to head out. Anna, our pastor's wife, stuck her head into the window of the car, shook her head at Joyce's dad, Elmer, and commented that he was a brave man to be taking the three of us home. She then admonished us in her Virginia drawl, You girls make sure to leave the house in one piece now. Laughing at her comments, we headed out, unaware of the impact those words would later carry. Never at a loss for words and fun, we laughed our way through dinner and cleanup. We then holed up in Joyce's room, giggling and talking, as typical high school girls do. After a bit, we decided to go outside, but we were put off by the sultry air. It was too hot and sticky to enjoy ourselves outside as we were still dressed in our church clothes. We walked down the highway a bit, but soon we were back indoors playing a game of Monopoly. Before we knew it, it was time to leave for the evening service. We hated for our day to end, but quickly put away the game. We would finish it another time. We headed outside into the still and muggy air. The eerie sky was filled with dark clouds that had a greenish tint. No doubt we were in for quite a storm. Little did we know. We arrived at church and sat down to enjoy the Sunday evening song service. Halfway through day by day, the lights went out and the wind began assaulting the stained glass windows that told the stories of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Not one to be outdone, Pastor Dorr took the pulpit. He competed with the wind for attention and successfully delivered his sermon. The dark and stormy evening seemed the perfect time to get my life right with God. Once the service was over, we all chatted, wondering what damage the torrential winds had done to the countryside. We didn't know that while we sat in that small, dark church, several tornadoes ripped through surrounding communities, destroying one helpless town after another. More than 200 people lost their lives that evening. 
Just as suddenly as it had come up, the wind died down. We all headed for home, oblivious to the damage some would find. But we soon got word that the tornadoes, which ravaged towns in six states, had nearly demolished Rushville. Joyce's house had been totally destroyed. The only room standing was the closet in the center of the house. It was an unbelievable sight. The walls were reduced to kindling, and precious belongings were either missing or shattered. Important tax papers were found miles away, mixed in with the debris of other destroyed homes. We found out that the tornado had hit Rushville 25 minutes after we left for church. Had we stayed, who knows what would have been our fate. Anna's words came back to haunt me. You girls leave the house in one piece now. Little did we know. Not long ago, we read June Kruzik's story of her wedding in the early days of her marriage. Uh, here's an excerpt from her book, Highlights of an Otherwise Ordinary Life. It includes memories from her preschool years. My earliest memory comes from way back when I was three years old. We lived in a little yellow house called the Dombrowski House. This was by the railroad tracks in the little town of Baker in eastern Montana. I can still remember the house, the rooms, and where the furniture was. Maybe it's because that was the house we were living in when our brother was born. With four sisters and myself, it was special to have a baby brother in the family. The morning our baby brother was born, Grandma, who was a midwife, called upstairs. Get up, girls. Come down and see your new baby brother. It didn't take us long to scramble down the stairs, and I'm sure we all loved him on sight. He was born just two weeks before Christmas, and it was very cold. I remember looking out of the window at all the snow and making ice pictures on the bedroom windows. I guess you might call it early American TV. We would sit on the bed and blow our breath on the windows to make ice crystals, then erase them with our warm fingers. We thought it was fascinating. Our father was very ill at the time, so his father came to live with us. I remember the evening we all went to the J.C. Penney store to see Santa Claus, who gave each of us a big candy cane and a toy. Mine was a horn. Our grandfather was a happy grandfather, but for some reason that horn didn't seem to delight him in the same way it did me. He liked to grab us with his cane, draw us in, and tickle us. We liked that, too. However, this particular, particular evening... He grabbed me with his cane, drew me in, and took my horn away. The very one Santa Claus had given to me. I don't remember getting it back, but I'm sure I did. In 1935, we even had an indoor toilet. There was a stool and a sink at the top of the stairway going down into the dark cellar, which had a dirt floor. It always seemed very scary to me, but not enough to keep me from the interesting cabinet above the stool. I found that if I stood on the stool, I could reach the cabinet where there was a little bottle with the prettiest purple powder in it. I guess I was not only a fun little girl, I must have been a curious one as well. Anyway, it looked very good, but tasted very bad. I must have really scared my mother, because immediately she called a doctor as my mouth and hands had turned an awful brown color. If you know what potassium permanganate is... Uh, you can guess what I looked like. It's a dark purple crystalline compound used as a disinfectant. I remember 
I did get to drink all the fruit juice I wanted. That was a good thing. I wonder if I ever thought of trying it again just for the juice. One day our father, who wasn't able to go out of doors often, must have gotten bored. Anyway, he decided to put a twenty-two caliber bullet on our wood cook stove and told everyone to duck. <laughs> we did. But about the time it fired, I stood up. Luckily, my back was turned. The bullet hit me right below the knob on the back of my head. Dad had to use the pliers to pull it out. I think he grew up about that time. I still carry the scar. My sisters were always saying, no wonder June is that way. She was shot in the head. Do you remember the song, Playmate? Playmate, come out and play with me and bring your dollies three. Climb up my apple tree. Shout down my rain barrel. Slide down my cellar door and we'll be jolly friends forevermore. I remember sitting on the cellar door in the sunshine playing dollies with my little sister, Patty, and the dolls. Mother made us with hankies and a water material with a ribbon tied around it to make a head. Patty was two years younger than I and had such big, beautiful, soulful blue eyes. Oh, for the lovely, carefree days of childhood. We even had a rain barrel where Mother would catch water to bathe and wash our hair with. About that time, we moved a short way out of town to a little farm that belonged to our grandfather. What I remember most about this place is how our dog Fritzy would lay under Daddy's bed and Daddy's horse would stand out by his bedroom window. One day, one day Daddy must have felt better because he drove us all to town, and on the way home, he taught me how to drive the car. Of course, I had to sit on his lap to see out the window since I was only four years old. I've been driving ever since. Or does it just seem like it? We didn't have hurricanes out on the prairie, but once in a while we would get what we called a cyclone. One hot summer day, the weather and the sky got real weird looking, and we all had to run to the root cellar and hide there until it was over. I thought it was kind of neat down there. We kept food there because it was cooler. I remember that it smelled like wet earth. Now when it rains, the smell triggers the memory of the cyclone and the root cellar. After those true stories of violent spring storms, I think we should switch to some fun fiction. Our friend Lisa Hess kindly agreed to read one of her contributions to the short story collection I compiled and edited titled Passageways. I think you'll enjoy The Hand of the Princess. Gather your rags around you, children, and come sit close to me. Quiet now, and I'll tell you a story. I know, little one. Just try to cough softly. This is a story about two boys and a girl not much older than some of you, in the time before this time, when the world still seemed sane. It was before the wars, when there was electricity 24 hours a day, and most people, not just the government, had a computer. What I'm about to tell you happened in a peaceful little town not far from here. The hero of this story was named Arturo, and he was in love with a girl named Gwen, and she was in love with him. Back in those days, children didn't talk to each other face-to-face -face the way you do now. They lived their lives in a virtual computer world, where they would tell all the inhabitants their thoughts, dreams, desires, and fantasies by writing on their virtual walls, which were something like a public billboard. They would fall in love, fight, break up, and get back together, 
all for everyone in their virtual worlds to see. They would display pictures of themselves, hundreds of them, doing all kinds of things, making faces, laughing with friends, standing in line at a theater. They called hanging their lives on the walls of this world, posting. Much of what they posted included information you children would think of as private, things to be hidden and only whispered about to your closest friends, so that strangers would not know who or where you were, and therefore could not find you and hurt you. But the world was different then. These children perceived no danger. Indeed, they felt safer in their virtual world than they did in the real world. Gwen could be sitting right next to her best friend, Megan. But if she had something to say to her, she would write it and post it to her friend's virtual wall. That way, the people who lived in the real world wouldn't hear them. They thought their secrets were safe until the night everything changed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It all started when Gwen had her nails done. In those days, children also published their stories on their bodies. Their hair, colors of pink and purple, magenta and black, reflected their moods. Their bodies were covered with permanent pictures and words that recorded the history of their lives, adventures, and loves. Even their nails were bejeweled and painted with perfect, intricate designs. On this particular day, Gwen thought her nails were so fantastically done and so pretty, she couldn't wait to show all her friends. So, of course, she took a self-portrait with her phone camera. The black and white photo showed her spread fingers tipped with perfect nails completely obscuring her face, except for one beautiful, dark, dramatically lined eye and her tousled hair spilling over her forehead. She posted the picture to her virtual wall. Never having been shy, Gwen titled the photo, The Hand of the Princess. The picture was a sensation. All her friends loved it. Within hours, 20 comments were posted saying how gorgeous Gwen looked, how wonderful her nails turned out, and how the viewers couldn't stop looking at that picture. When Gwen's friends commented on her picture, the comment and the picture appeared on their virtual walls. Then their friends commented on the photo, and so it went. The comments piled up, page after page, and became increasingly more sophisticated. Some mentioned Gwen's mature use of perspective, contrast, and lighting, Others asked about her artistic influences and wanted to know which galleries featured her work. For a while, Gwen was famous because of that picture, and everyone in her small town knew about it. One of the comments caused quite a stir. It came from Gwen's ex-boyfriend Lance, who'd moved to the city the year before. The comment wasn't long. It simply read, Wow, when did you get so hot? Within minutes, Arturo posted a follow-up comment. Dude, she's always been hot and quit talking about her like she's yours, when she's not. Now, you must understand that Arturo and Lance had been friends since they were small children, even though they were from two different tribes, you might say, which had little in common. Their friendship began in preschool. One day, when their mothers arrived to pick them up from daycare, a place where children stayed and played while their mothers worked, Arturo and Lance were wrestling. In fact, they'd been wrestling and fighting all day, and their teacher was only too glad to see their mothers. The two outraged boys, who looked almost like brothers but not quite, were locked in mortal combat. The mothers quickly sized up the situation and pulled them apart. While the boys continued to hurl insults at each other, Arturo yelled, You're a silly little chica running to your mama. Lance had no idea what chica meant, but he knew it wasn't good. He thought fast, trying to come up with something just as bad to fling back at the other boy. A word popped into his head he thought he'd heard an older boy in his tribe use to describe a farm worker. Oh yeah? 
Lance clamped his tiny hands on his little hips and pooched out his bottom lip. Well, you're just a bean. When he didn't receive the response he was hoping for, he realized he hadn't repeated the insult quite right. Arturo was puzzled, and he had no idea why being a bean would be bad. He liked beans. But his mother had gasped, so he shouted the only thing he could think of back at Lance. Oh, yeah? Well, well, you're just a red bean. Fists clenched. Both boys stared at each other as stillness enveloped the room. When the boys' teacher and their mothers dissolved into chuckles that turned into peals of laughter, which only got louder the longer the hilarity lasted and ended with tears streaming down the women's faces. The boys shrugged. Their mothers appeared to be friends and seemed to be having a great time together, so they figured they could be friends too. And they were, from that time forward, until they met Gwen. Gwen moved to town when she was 15 and the boys a year older. Auburn-haired with light, light skin and eyes so dark they were almost black, she was just beginning to grow into the striking woman she would become. A city girl with wild clothes and a ring in her nose, she exuded a confidence unmatched by the small-town girls the boys had known all their lives. For an entire year, they avoided her, feeling outclassed by her sophisticated ways. But eventually, she let them into her virtual world, called friending. And they, along with all the other children in town, soon inhabited the same virtual universe. Before long, Lance, the more assertive of the two, began to flirt with Gwen. He praised her virtual photo album, commented when her pictures showed she changed her hair, had a new tattoo, and then he actually started calling her on the phone. The other girls in town tried to warn Gwen. Lance would post, you're my greatest fantasy. Taylor would add, I remember when you used to say that to me. Or Lance would comment, I took a long drive and thought about you all the way. Emily would respond, hey, you said you were thinking about me yesterday. Lance was glib, confident, and funny. He had lots of friends and relatives he posted with in the city. His writing was bold and edgy, something Gwen missed from her city days. Just before the boys graduated from high school, Lance and Gwen began spending time together in the real world, but their romance didn't last. Gwen felt awkward around Lance. He was too good-looking, too self-assured, and it wasn't long before she realized the other girls were right. He was a player who didn't have time for anyone's dreams but his own. Arturo watched all this from afar. He knew Lance, and he knew he would soon tire of this latest girl. Arturo was polite to Gwen, but he didn't treat her like she was anything special. She was the only woman in the world he'd ever really wanted, but Lance was his best friend. So he hid his feelings and waited, and it seemed Arturo's plan worked. Lance commented less and less on Gwen's postings and pictures. When his comments did appear, they were patronizing and tinged with sarcasm. Eventually, Lance stopped calling. On top of that, he unfriended Gwen, which was their generation's ultimate rejection. Lance and Gwen didn't actually break up, because they hadn't been officially together. And Gwen had begun to distance herself from Lance. But still, his unfriending hurt. As you might guess, Arturo was there to pick up the pieces. What neither Gwen nor Arturo perceived was that Lance wasn't as blind as they'd thought. He had started to fall for Gwen. This girl, unlike any other, was the one person who could get in the way of all his dreams, the one who could keep him in that small town. So he cut her loose before she tied him down. After he left, Lance and Gwen eventually revived their virtual relationship. He friended her and she friended him. It was all very friendly. Until Lance saw her hand of the princess portrait. Surprised by the feeling of loss he experienced, he'd posted the comment about Gwen. And then Arturo and Lance weren't friends anymore. It was a short time later that Gwen's brother became very ill. The problem wasn't as dire as it seemed. 
The medical community had a procedure to fix the problem. But the challenge was, of course, money. Gwen's family didn't have the funds to pay for the procedure. One night, while Gwen lay listening to her brother's tortured breathing in the next room, she hit upon a plan. She threw off her covers and flipped open her computer. After a moment, she typed this. For my brother who's sick and in great distress, I'm auctioning off the hand of the princess. One large copy is signed and completed. All other copies will be deleted. She took a deep breath and pushed the post button. The world being what it was, most people had forgotten about Gwen and her picture and moved on to the next latest sensation. But in that small town, both the girl and the picture were still famous. When she announced that a poster-sized portrait would be auctioned off in a week at the local player's theater, the post began to fly. Lance wrote, That picture will be mine. I'll arrive the night before. Seeing you would be fine, I'll be knocking at your door. Innocently, Gwen responded, I've missed you, my friend. I'll take what help I can get. Who'll end up with the picture? It's anyone's bet. Arturo wrote, You know, this really isn't a competition. We're helping Gwen's brother. It's about his condition. The back-and-forth posts went on for days. Arturo tried not to be jealous. He trusted Gwen, and truth be told, he still had a soft spot for his longtime buddy Lance. But he knew how charming Lance could be, and he knew Gwen had once been attracted to him. Although he didn't want to play the jealous lover, Arturo couldn't help but ask Gwen in a post what she would do if Lance really did show up at her door. Her response was simple. This is something you'll have to rise above. Chemistry happens, but that's not love. Her answer didn't help Arturo feel better. He knew Lance had received a substantial amount of money from a trust fund on his 18th birthday. He'd purchased a convertible and cool clothes, set aside enough money for college, and still had loads of cash left over. On the other hand, Arturo was barely making ends meet as an assistant manager at the local grocery store. He still lived with his parents and drove the beater he'd had all through high school. He thought about Gwen choosing between him and Lance the night of the auction, and he imagined the choice wouldn't be very hard. As tormented as he was by his thoughts of Lance and Gwen, Arturo was equally tortured by the pain her brother endured. Arturo didn't just love Gwen, he loved her entire family. He thought of her brother as his little brother, too. He sincerely wanted to do something to ease his pain, but what? The night before the auction, Lance made a grand appearance at Gwen's door, all charm and swagger. He swept her into his arms and gave her a hug that lifted her off her feet. She shrieked, hugged him back, and then laughingly told him to put her down. She ushered him into her house to see the rest of the family, but before she shut the door, she scanned up and down the street. No Arturo. She hadn't seen or heard from him in three days. Surely he'd come to see his friend, but Arturo stayed away. All evening, Lance and Gwen sat in her kitchen, catching up and laughing about how silly they'd been when they were young. Her brother joined them for a time, but tired quickly. Gwen watched him as he slowly made his way up the stairs to his bedroom, and Lance saw the boy's pain reflected in Gwen's anxious eyes. In that instant, what Arturo had been trying to tell him in his post became real to Lance. This wasn't a game. It was life or death. Sitting next to the woman he may or may not have loved, Lance's view of his world began to change. He wanted to tell Gwen it would be okay, that somehow he would help her brother. All the way to her house, he'd been consumed with a fantasy that began when he kissed her full lips and felt her melt in his arms. Now, all he wanted was to smooth away the worry lines around her pretty mouth and see her lips curve into the carefree, confident smile he remembered. But he couldn't do any of those things. He could have posted his feelings, but he didn't know how to say them out loud, and he couldn't make her brother better. So he said the only thing he could manage, Gwen, I'm so sorry. 
He pulled her into a hug and vowed to help her somehow. She searched his eyes, smiled, and pushed him away. She was going to bed, she said, and if he really wanted to help, he should bid up the picture the following night. Lance showed himself out. That night, one lonely post appeared on Arturo's wall. Where are you, Arturo? I miss you so. The night of the auction, the entire town descended on the players' theater. Some were there to bid, some to watch the bidding. Many, it was said, had come to see the showdown that was sure to happen between Lance and Arturo. But those people were sadly disappointed because Arturo wasn't there. Gwen worked her way through the crowd, dressed like an on-trend princess in blue velvet and silver satin empire waist sheath. She kept a smile plastered on her face, waved to friends in the balcony, and thanked as many people as possible for coming, always with one eye on the door. Finally, when it seemed everyone who was coming must have arrived, Gwen unveiled the portrait on the stage to gasps of admiration and applause from the crowd. The auction began, and, still, no Arturo. Bidding started at $300 but moved up fast. In minutes, people were bidding $500, $1,000, then $5,000, and they didn't stop there. As the bidding inched its way toward $10,000, it seemed many times each bid would be the final one, only to be topped at the last minute to the delighted applause of the crowd. By the time the bids reached $10,000, there were only a few bidders left. Lance was one of them, which would have left Gwen with mixed feelings if she'd had time to think about it. But her thoughts were entirely occupied with hope for her brother and apprehension about Arturo's absence. She feared something dire must have happened to him. Lance was thinking about Gwen and what he'd discovered earlier in the day regarding costs for her brother's treatment. Though the bidding had climbed past $15,000, the sum wasn't half of what was needed. As the sun set behind the theater and the bidding continued to rise, he also knew he might very well be throwing away his entire inheritance for a woman who loved someone else. The bidding was slowing down, the local bank CEO had finally thrown in the towel, and the only two bidders left were Lance and an art collector from out of town. Of course, the town was rooting for Lance to win over the outsider. The bidding inched up, 15-1, 15-2. The collector matched Lance bid for bid, 16,000, 16, Lance made eye contact with Gwen, who was across the room. She shook her head, a gesture he knew meant this was her burden, not his. Then she turned with another worried, longing look toward the empty theater entrance. Lance clenched his fists and felt the anger like a liquid boiling in his chest. He wished for a wall to punch, but the crowd surrounded him on every side. He couldn't stand to see Gwen hurting, and he was mad at Arturo for causing her pain. Yet it was more than that. He hated the whole tangled mess, and most of all, he missed the best friend he'd ever had. The thought washed over him like a revelation. He loved them both in a rare way. Theirs was a friendship that transcended lust or greed or rivalry, and he would do anything to preserve it. The auctioneer was saying it again. Going once, going twice. Lance held up his paddle and bid his entire future. $25,000. His voice was strong and sure. The crowd gasped and jumped to their feet. Going once, going twice, sold to the young man in the front row. There was an explosion of whistles, shouts, and applause. People surrounded Lance, congratulating him, patting him on the back. He lost sight of Gwen and then saw her on the other side of the theater, talking to Megan. Smiling at the people he'd grown up with, thanking them for coming, saying it was the least he could do, he worked his way slowly through the crowd to Megan and Gwen. He must have looked like he always did, swaggering and self-assured, but he didn't feel it. The girls had their heads close together. Megan thrust a piece of paper into Gwen's hands and whispered urgently in her ear. 
At first, Gwen looked mystified, but then tears started to run down her face too many to wipe away. All the onlookers saw was Gwen staring at a piece of paper and crying and Lance looking over her shoulder at it with a perplexed expression that quickly changed to resignation. Some said, in that instant, he looked older, while the more perceptive of them used words like weary and wise. At that point, the collector, who'd been bidding against Lance, placed a hand on his shoulder. The two men talked for a minute. Lance looked at Gwen, who smiled up at him and nodded. Lance and the collector shook hands. The man walked away, and Lance turned to whispering Gwen's ear. She hugged him, and then hand in hand, the pair hurried toward the exit. That was the last most people in that small town ever saw of Arturo, Lance, and Gwen. Most figured Arturo knew he was beaten, that Lance and Gwen had run off together. Yet there was enough money for all the medical treatment Gwen's brother needed to make a full recovery, and he did. Along with Megan, he kept the whereabouts of the three friends secret for many months. But finally, Megan broke the silence with this post. Arturo did what he thought was right. He joined the war, and so much more. The front is a nightmare, our men are in flight, and they'll pay a king's ransom for a boy to fight. Arturo had tired of middle management, plus he'd lost Gwen. Why not join the army and save her brother in the process? That was the message he'd sent with Megan to Gwen that night, along with the check the government gave him to enlist, and a life insurance policy with Gwen as the sole beneficiary. Did Lance end up with Gwen after all? Patience, child. My story isn't finished. When Lance and Gwen left the theater, they climbed into Lance's car, drove all night, and made it to the army base at dawn the next morning, just as Arturo was climbing onto a bus that would carry him far, far away. He heard someone call his name and turned to see Gwen running toward him. Behind her, he saw Lance leaning casually against the fender of his car. Arturo shrugged. It was all right. He'd known Gwen would end up with his childhood friend. But then he saw Gwen's face. He could see she'd been crying. Her eyes were red and her makeup smeared. Barefoot and wearing a beautiful crumpled dress he hadn't seen before, she looked like a ravished princess. What had Lance done to her? Before Arturo could move or say a word, Gwen threw herself into his arms and clung to him as if she'd never let go. Stunned, he pulled back and held her at arm's length. She smiled the old Gwen smile, confident and fond, with just a hint of amusement, and punched him not gently in the shoulder. Then she kissed him and said, Oh, Arturo, don't even start. Lance won my hand, but you own my heart. He promised he would come back for her, and she promised she would wait forever. What happened after that? Well, Lance sold the photo, with Gwen's blessing to the art collector, and recouped most of the cost. He returned to college, but it wasn't long before every young man of fighting age was drafted. Last I heard, Lance and Arturo ended up in the same unit. How that story unwinds is yet to be written. And Gwen? Many people say she went to art school, which she did in a way. I have it on good authority she did what she'd always wanted to do. She attended beauty school. Let me see that hand, little one. I think I might be able to do something about those nails. Tomorrow. Right now, children, it's off to bed with you. Now, now, none of that. There are many more stories and nights enough to tell you all of them while we wait down here for this current wind to blow over. I'll tell you another good story tomorrow. Although the hand of the princess, I must admit, has always been my favorite. Thanks, Lisa. Such a unique story. So I am very interested in, to know how you came up with that idea. Well, the story actually originated 
when I was standing over um, the shoulder of one of my nieces who will remain nameless. And this was before I was on Facebook, before my friends and relatives had forced me to join Facebook. And I was fascinated by how it worked. And I was watching her post and one of her ex-boyfriend's did come on to Facebook and did actually say, wow, when did you get so hot? And then her current boyfriend did actually come on right after that and and say, she's always been hot and quit talking about her like she's yours when she's not. And the first thing I thought was, wow, these kids really are pointed with each other on Facebook and, and uh, don't really pull any punches. But the second thing I thought was, that rhymes. And wouldn't it be way more fun if we all had to rhyme our posts on Facebook? And the story um, just kind of grew from there. So I started thinking about love triangles. And of course, the one of the greatest love triangles of all kind to all time is the Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot love triangle. And um, as I started thinking about that, the story grew from there. Thank you. I love all the connections. Oh, thanks, Lisa. Love hearing you read that story. We're gonna, gonna conclude with a poem by Laurie Bauer called Stages. From morning's youthful features springs the light and hope for better things is yet to come. A spirit never broken veils the plight of growing old as time will tell for some. From noon, in wrinkles, light reveals the warmest blessings life can hold for man. His love has blossomed through middle age, he feels, and lit his life, a single starry strand. From evening's silent pattern, light doth fade as each returns the dust from whence he sprung. A small percent of change in life he's made, as shadows close, his chimes of time have rung. From love a morning dawns, a noon is soon to tell that evening darkens near and says farewell. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.